Hello, my name is Jeff Reist, and I'm an associate clinical professor of pharmacy here at the University of Iowa. I also practice in the geriatric clinic in the Department of Family Medicine at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And I'm happy to be here today to present an update of the Beers criteria, which, as you may know, were recently updated um, in the fall of 2015. I have no financial interests or relationships to disclose. Uh, what we're hoping to accomplish today is to give you a, a very in-depth look at the Beers Criteria 2015 update. Uh, this is an update um, which had a major overhaul of the Beers Criteria and quite a few additions uh, to the criteria that we've been using for a number of years. Uh, we're going to talk about potentially inappropriate medications as it relates to older adults' medication regimens. We're going to think about those medications and how they, the outcomes that result from those, some of the negative events, some of the side effects, if you will, of medications. We're going to talk about some dangerous drug interactions that can occur. And we're going to talk about how a person's uh, kidney function as it changes over the decades of life, how it affects the dosages of medications that we should use. And then lastly, we're going to review some lists of some anticholinergic medications. Anticholinergic drugs, as you may know, um, have some serious implications for side effects in older adults. So let's start out with the case. Uh, we're going to talk about JB, uh, and we're going to revisit JB toward the end of this presentation, but let's just get an introduction to him now. Um, he's an 82-year-old male. His past medical history is there for you. Hypertension, BPH, mild cognitive impairment, and some recent constipation. Not an unusual medical problem list for an older adult. Uh, his vitals are there for you. Uh, we know we have some orthostatic blood pressures taken there. Um, and of interest, uh, he has no known drug allergies. His chief concerns and what brings him in today is that he's been having a lot of falling issues. Um, and in older adults, anytime we um, hear reports of falling, um, that should kind of perk up our ears a little bit so we can think about some issues that might be going on uh, because we know how, how risky falls can be um, and how uh, seriously life-changing um, a fall, and particularly a fracture, can be to an older adult. He's also been getting up multiple times at night to urinate. Uh, he, remember, he has BPH, and it's not that unusual. Uh, he is complaining of some dizziness and some passing out. Uh, again, worrisome for falls. And his confusion. He had some minor confusion, some cognitive impairment, and that seems to be getting worse. And the family is telling us that, you know, we're going to have to place this place uh, him into a nursing home pretty soon because we really can't take care of him anymore. His medication list is here for you. Um, as med lists go, it's not a very extensive med list. He's on chlorthalidone, diphenhydramine, uh, terazosin, um, a couple laxatives. So not a tremendously um, long medication list. So we're going to kind of leave JB for a little bit, and we're going to talk about potentially inappropriate medications, which is kind of the backbone of the Beers criteria. Uh, we'll come back to him uh, toward the end of the program after we've talked about some of these meds, and we'll see if there's some things we can do to help him out. But for now, let's kind of shift gears and, and talk about this thing called, um, we call them PIMS, or potentially inappropriate medications. And there's quite a few different definitions out there, and there's some here, some definitions listed on the slide for you to review. So it's medications that are problematic um, either in adults or necess are not necessarily just in older adults by themselves, but in older adults with certain medical conditions. They tend to be associated with some very poor health outcomes. And the definition that I like best 
um, as a pharmacist is when we use medications where the risk is um, greater than the benefit. Um, and as you think about medications, you know, whenever we think about adding a medication to a person's regimen, um, we always have to do that risk-benefit analysis, don't we? We have to think about that. We have to think, what are we hoping to accomplish? You know, is this medication going to improve quality of life? Is it going to reduce symptoms? Is it going to extend life? Is it going to cure disease? You know, what is our outcome? Um, then we have to think about what negative things can happen. You know, side effects um, can be quite a spectrum. So things such as, you know, mild dry mouth, maybe dry eyes, runny nose, things like that. You know, that's at one end. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have death. You know, we have medications that we know used inappropriately for certain conditions can actually um, hasten death. So um, the spectrum of, of side effects is, is quite uh, broad and we need to think about that. So when we use these medications where the risk tends to overweigh the benefit, uh, that's a potentially inappropriate medication. So how do these PIMs, as we call them, uh, and polypharmacy interact? Are they really the same thing or are they two different things? Well, you know, they're a little bit different, but they do have some intersection. Polypharmacy, I think most of us are aware of that, is, you know, when we have actually excessive medication use on a given person. Um, it can result from us not a, doing a very good job of uh, assessing a patient's adherence with their medication regimen. So things like, you know, their blood pressure meds, uh, their diabetes meds, um, if they're not taking those and say we're not at blood pressure or diabetes goal, uh, we tend to add medications or increase doses. Uh, those can be inappropriate. Polypharmacy can also result from poor choice of medications, either dose or duration. Um, adding medications to treat side effects. Um, it's all uh, going to result in this polypharmacy. So you can sort of see how uh, PIMS and, and polypharmacy are, are related. So polypharmacy is kind of a downward spiral. Um, let's say we, we, we start a potentially inappropriate medication or continue one. Um, and it is important to think about these PIMS as, you know, maybe when they were started 30 years ago, it wasn't inappropriate. You know, maybe at that point in time, the person's body, their, their receptors, their kidney function, their hepatic function could tolerate the medication. Um, and as they've aged, this medication has suddenly become potentially inappropriate. So let's say we start a medication like this or continue one longer than we should, and a side effect is developed. Oftentimes, these side effects can be fairly nonspecific you know, things like drowsiness, fatigue, muscle ache, you know, those are pretty nonspecific side effects. They can be from many medications. They can be from many medical conditions as well. So the challenge is to, to interpret this as a side effect, but sometimes we don't, and we think of it as a new condition, and we add a medication to treat that. You know, that added medication becomes a, a potentially inappropriate medication. And as we do that, we develop polypharmacy. Another example, and I kind of alluded to this on the previous slide, if we don't do a good job of, it, of assessing adherence with medication regimens and we do not observe an effect, uh, we tend to do one of two things. We add another medication to treat that condition or we increase the dose. Either one would be considered potentially inappropriate. Both can lead to polypharmacy. So one thing that, that I just want to point out is, you know, polypharmacy and potentially inappropriate medication, it's not all about the number of medications. So let's look at JR for a minute. JR, he's 71 years old, and he has heart failure. He has a history of MI. He has osteoarthritis and hypothyroidism. Again, not an uncommon list of 
medical problems for a 71-year-old male. Um, if you look over on, on his medication list, he's on um, a fair number of medications. He has eight medications there. You can see several medications we use for cardiovascular disease, um, his thyroid medicine, and certainly his acetaminophen uh, for his arthritis, and, and aspirin with his history of MI. So the question is, is this polypharmacy? Well, if we're thinking of medicines, eight, that seems like a pretty large number of medications, although you know we've seen more. Uh, does he have poly uh, potentially inappropriate medications? I would say no. Um, does he have potential drug interactions? Maybe. Um, there's some drug interactions there, but they're manageable. Uh, does he have duplication? Um, again, I would say no. And is he using medications to treat side effects? I would also say no. Let's go back and look at that mid list. So look at that. He's got metoprolol, lisinopril, furosemide, spironolactone. Now, are those duplicative? Well, not really. Um, they're generally used for heart failure. A person with heart failure should be on that uh, list of four medications. Um, they do similar things, but they're not duplicative. The simvastatin, certainly a person that's had a history of a, a heart attack should be on statins, um, as well as aspirin. Uh, osteoarthritis, acetaminophens, the guideline drug of choice, and certainly for hypothyroidism, um, his levothyroxine. So eight medications, but I would say he does not have potentially inappropriate medications, nor does he have polypharmacy. Let's take another case. We have MB here, and she's an 81-year-old female with Alzheimer's dementia and urinary incontinence. She's only on two medications. She's on Donepazil uh, for her dementia, and she's on oxybutynin for her urinary incontinence. So would you say this is polypharmacy? A lot of people say, well, certainly not. You know, she's only on two medications. How could that be polypharmacy? But I would say it is. What is the potentially inappropriate medications? Well, it could be either one. It kind of depends on which was started first. So uh, it could be that the donepazil was started. Donepazil is a cholinergic drug, and cholinergic drugs um, have some utility um, in treating Alzheimer's-type dementia. Um, however, if we think about how cholinergic drugs work um, and how urinary incontinence develops, so urinary incontinence develops um, because of the detrusor muscle in the bladder being overactive and overexcitable, well, that's innervated by the cholinergic system. So when we give people cholinergic drugs, sometimes we can actually um, induce urinary incontinence. So um, the other way this could have played out is she could have developed urinary incontinence first and been put on um, oxybutynin. Oxybutynin has strong anticholinergic effects, and we know anticholinergic effects are associated with confusion, um, and that could have taken a person with mild cognitive impairment and kind of dropped them down into the area of dementia. So this particular patient, you know, while they're only on two medications, I would say they have uh, potentially inappropriate meds and they do suffer from polypharmacy. So in addition to being very, very dangerous for patients' well-being and quality of life, polypharmacy and potentially inappropriate medications have a cost to society. Um, I found an article, and the data is a little bit old, but it was published in 2007 um, in Medical Care. It was a, a cohort study, and they looked at community-dwelling older population in the year 2001, and they best estimated that due the side, the treatment of the side effects and health and expenditures related to potential potentially inappropriate medication use in that particular cohort in that year 
reached $7.2 billion. So hopefully I've made a case for the importance of looking at the medication regimens of our older adults and trying to identify potentially inappropriate medications for, for two reasons, primarily to prevent harm and decreases in quality of life for our older adults, but also as a cost reduction strategy. So how can we do that? So there's a couple strategies listed on this screen, certainly doing medication reconciliation at each visit and assessing for adherence. So medication reconciliation, you know, asking or finding out all of the medications a person is taking, comparing that with the list that we think they're taking and reconciling those two lists. Um, the clinic I work in, this is a big, big part of my job. And I can tell you, you know, as healthcare providers, you know, we're often um, in the dark about all the medications that people are taking or not taking. Uh, we feel that we've ordered them, they're taking them, we find out some of them never get picked up at the pharmacy. Um, some of them get picked up and taken sporadically. And then there's a whole another group of medications that we don't even know they're taking, that they are over-the-counter medications, um, they're sharing friends' medications or spouses. So uh, doing this medication reconciliation and focusing on adherence is an extremely important strategy to identify these potentially inappropriate meds. Um, assess each time uh, the continued need of each medication. Is this a medication that is still needed? Um, has blood pressure dropped to a point where we don't need all of these blood pressure meds anymore? Have they reached the stage in their life where we need to change our, our strategy for treating uh, blood pressure and diabetes and maybe loosen up our, our goals a little bit? Investigate any new conditions or symptoms. Now, as a pharmacist, this is, you know, every time I, I, I talk to a patient and they say, you know, I've got this, you know, aching pain or I've got this, this new condition, I immediately go to the med list. I think that's just what pharmacists do. Um, and I assume that whatever is happening wrong is a medication problem. I'm not always right. You know, oftentimes it's a new condition, but I always look at the medication list first to try to rule out medications as a cause because that can be an easy fix. You know, we can change the medication, we can reduce the dose, we can stop it. However, if, if we don't identify the medication as the culprit, you know, we do spend a lot of time and add a lot of medications and a lot of unnecessary testing that may not ever uh, come to the, the, the solution of the problem. Um, and screening for problematic medications. Number one thing that we can do is screening for these problematic medications. So how do we do that? So we have some screening tools. We have a couple that have been out for a number of years, the Beers criteria, which we're gonna talk about in great, great detail in just a moment. Uh, but we also have the start and stop criteria. Uh, stop and start, I will not be talking about today. This is a, a slightly different screening tool. It involves work done in Europe. And as such, it has often medications that we're not familiar with in the United States or different names for medications that we're familiar with. But nonetheless, it can be very helpful uh, the stop portion of the stop-start criteria are very similar to the Beers criteria. It talks about potentially inappropriate medications that we may not want to use in older adults, whereas the start criteria are, are quite different than the Beers criteria. It actually takes a different approach. Um, it considers that there are probably some medications that we're not using in older adults that maybe we should be using. Um, if you're not familiar with the stop-start criteria, I would encourage you to investigate it because the start criteria in particular are something that we really haven't talked very much about. Um, things such as, you know, who should be on aspirin? 
you know, who should be on certain uh, medications for certain chronic conditions that sometimes we forget about. It is important to remember that both the Beers criteria and the Stop Start criteria are tools. They are not absolute. We do need to remember that clinical judgment is always an essential component of our, not only our screening, but our recommendations. Uh, because there are times when the risk is not outweighed by the benefit, and there's sometimes when the benefit um, outweighs the risk. So we do need to keep that in mind. So we're going to talk about the Beers criteria for the rest of this presentation. Uh, just a little history of the Beers criteria. The criteria were first um, developed in 1991. Um, Dr. Beers and his colleagues developed this list, and it was a list of medications that, that in their opinion, nursing facility residents should not be taking. Uh, this was um, welcome news for many of us working in long-term care at the time. I was working as a consultant pharmacist in 1991, and you know these are medications that we all knew were problematic, and we were really happy to have validation at the national level that these medications were actually problematic. Uh, some of the notorious medications that were on that first list were drugs that are not even on the market anymore. Um, in fact, I think the Beers criteria was instrumental in getting many of these problematic medications off the market, including propoxyphene. Uh, they were expanded and revised in 1997 and 2003 uh, to include medications that should be reconsidered in older adults in all settings, not just in long-term care facilities. In 2012 and 2015, the Beers Criteria Group uh, partnered with the American Geriatric Society, the AGS, um, and they came out with the 2012 and most recently the 2015 updates. So we're going to talk about the 2015 update because it really expanded the resource as we know it. Uh, the methods were similar. They used an interdisciplinary expert panel. Um, they review the literature. They find all kinds of you know, studies, case reports, uh, analyses of medication problems. They developed their initial tables. They sent them out for public comment, and maybe some that are listening to this saw those. I, I actually got to see those uh, in the pre-publication format, and they uh, had a period of time when we could send our comments to them. And uh, it, it seems to be a very, very good procedure. Uh, the additions that we're going to focus on today in a little bit are some of the added tables to the to the 2015 update. And uh, probably the, the three that we're going to spend most of our time with are medications that be, should be dose-adjusted based on kidney function. You know, we all know every decade of life we lose a certain percentage of our kidney function. And medications that are renally cleared um, become toxic. So there's a nice list of medications that we should all be considering uh, dose adjusting um, in older adults. Um, also a very nice uh, listing of potentially important drug-drug uh, interactions that occur in older adults. Um, and then lastly, and there's been other lists of this in the past, but it's nice to have them as a component of the Beers criteria, um, is a list of drugs with strong anticholinergic properties. The list, including the article and pocket cards, are available uh, from the American Geriatric Society at geriatricscareonline.org, which is on your slide here. Uh, you do have to register uh, to access these materials, but I believe that registration is free. Uh, and that free registration includes access to the articles that were published in the fall of 2015, uh, one which lists all the tables. Uh, another companion article which lists alternatives for the Beers Criteria Meds. Uh, you can also order pocket cards or print them out um, from there. 
Um, if you're a member of AGS, they're free. Um, there's a small charge. I think it's pretty nominal, like $5 or something uh, to get the pocket cards if you're not a member. Um, but I would encourage you to go to that website and look at the resources that are there. So the next two slides, I'm going to just list uh, the, the, the main seven tables that are in the Beers Criteria article. Um, I do want to point out that the article has a different numbering system from the tables from the pocket cards. Uh, the pocket cards do not have table one, so they actually start, their table one is actually table two from the article. I'm going to refer to the tables by the numbering system that's used in the article, which is available free online at the American Geriatric Society. Table one is the table which describes how they um, rate the evidence and the strength of the recommendation. Table two is the list that we're probably most familiar with, the potentially inappropriate medications in older adults list. That's the original Beers criteria. Table three um, is medications that may be inappropriate with certain disease states. So we, we think of this as the drug disease interaction table. Table four um, is medications to be used with caution in older adults. Now this is the, you know, these aren't the necessarily as potentially inappropriate as the table two drugs, um, but they're kind of on the watch list, if you will. Table five, six, and seven are new in this update. Table five is potentially clinically important drug interactions in older adults. Table six, medication to avoid or reduce dose with reduced kidney function. And table seven, the drugs with strong anticholinergic property list. Table one is, you know, basically for those of us that are really interested in, you know, how high a quality evidence was used to make this decision and how strongly do we feel about this recommendation. And, and when you look at the, the tables and the pocket cards, you'll see this listed. So, you know, it gives you a little bit more comfort level when you're making your recommendation. So quality of evidence could be rated high, moderate, or low. High, of course, is uh, multiple randomized controlled trials or multiple consistent observational studies, all the way down to low, which, you know, basically if it's low uh, quality of evidence, there's really no, um, it's insufficient to assess harms or risk. The strength of the recommendation is how strongly do we feel um, in this recommendation. So if we feel very strongly about it, we feel that it's clearly a case where our benefits are clearly outweighed by whatever risk there is. Uh, weak benefit may not outweigh risk and insufficient, inadequate um, evidence to, to determine that net risk. Uh, table two is the table that I think most of us think about when we think about the Beers criteria. It is the table which lists those medications which are deemed potentially inappropriate in older adults. And it's kind of interesting how they're organized. You know, some of them are listed by organ system, some by therapeutic category, and some by drug. And it's just kind of funky how they're organized, but it, it works. Um, it, you know, it's a very easy to use list, and we're going to go through that uh, list right now. I'm going to give you the highlights. Now, I'm not going to necessarily list every drug that's on table two. Uh, what I did as I as I look through this list every time it's updated. I think to myself, which medications are commonly encountered in my practice? Um, and I think my practice is a fairly typical geriatric practice. Um, I practice in two different clinics, so I have two different teams I work on. And um, we see quite a variety of patients. So there are some medications on the list that I, have never, I haven't seen in practice for years and years and years. So I've kind of 
kind of skipped over those. I really want to focus on the meds that we see a lot. So this first group um, are the first generation antihistamines. Um, and the problem with these, these first generation, these are the ones that came out before the Claritins and the Zyrtex and that, is that they're very anticholinergic. And you'll hear me use that term anticholinergic a lot. You know, anticholinergic effect refers to how they work um, on certain receptors in our body, the cholinergic system. So anticholinergic drugs tend to cause the series of effects such as confusion, dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation, and dizziness. So when I say anticholinergic drugs, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about drugs that have that group of side effects, which, you know, when we're very young, you know, maybe they're tolerable. But as we get older, then we maybe have some mild cognitive impairment, or maybe we have some, you know, if we're a male, we might have some BPH and some mild urinary retention. Um, and maybe our, our GI tract isn't working as well. And we do have some slowed transit time. Um, and maybe, you know, our receptors aren't working well and we get a little lightheaded. So all of those things can be compounded by drugs that have anticholinergic side effects. And this group of antihistamines are extremely anticholinergic. Um, I do want to focus on the fact that many of these drugs um, have historically been used for allergies. But I think most of us recognize that second one on the list, diphenhydramine, as having another life. It, it's used a lot of times not for allergies, I mean, certainly we use it in the emergency department when we have a person coming in in a severe allergic reaction. But many times, diphenhydramine in the over-the-counter market um, is used as a sleep aid, as is doxylamine, the one right below it. Uh, meclizine, used oftentimes for vertical dizziness, although, as we can see, you know, these drugs can enhance dizziness. And certainly promethazine, um, being an antihistamine, it's often more often used as an anti-nausea medication. Um, so these drugs, even though they're classically antihistamines, uh, we do tend to use them for other things as well. Um, and oftentimes, because they're all over the counter, we have the mistaken impression that they're safe. Um, but I would tell you that I believe that diphenhydramine, in its many over-the-counter forms for a sleep aid, um, is not necessarily safe in older adults. We have an anti-infective on the list. It's called nitrofurantoin, um, also known as macrodantin. Um, it's very... Um, old agent that's been around for many, many years. Um, it's used appropriately short-term for urinary tract infections. However, the Beer's criteria suggests, and I would agree with them, that we should probably not use this drug for long-term treatment. Um, historically, this drug has been used for prophylaxis for urinary tract infections for people both with and without catheters. Um, and what we find is that it does have some significant pulmonary and also hepatic toxicity, um, as well as peripheral neuropathy that can, can develop. And these risks actually kind of outweigh the benefits for long-term use. Um, certainly it's dangerous with people that have declining renal function um, in, the, in the range of about a creatinine clearance of less than 30. So nitrofurantoin, probably okay for short-term use, but we probably should avoid it for long-term use. Um, some cardiac drugs have made the list. Um, the alpha blockers uh, listed here are the non-selective alpha blockers. We also have another list of selective alpha blockers, um, including both tamsulosin and alfluzacin, uh, which tend to be safer. Um, hence, they're not on the Beer's criteria list. So those would be alternatives that we could use in place of these drugs. Um, 
Now the alpha blockers um, historically were developed, at least the non-selective ones, were developed to treat hypertension and they lower the blood pressure certainly by causing vasodilation. Um, however, we don't really use them for hypertension anymore. They tend to be used primarily in men uh, for BPH, um, but this non-selective group tends to be very, very commonly causing orthostatic hypertension, which results in falls. Um, in fact, these drugs have historically always been given at bedtime because of the, the, the association with the dizziness in falls. Um, so really, we shouldn't be using those three, the doxazosin, prazosin, and terazosin. Um, if we do have a guy that needs um, an alpha blocker for VPH, uh, which is a very, very appropriate thing to do, uh, we should be using the selective agent, probably the tamsulosin um, or the elfluzosin. Likewise, the antithrombotics listed here have been replaced with safer alternatives, uh, such as clopidogrel. Dipyridamol, the short-acting form, or teclopidine really shouldn't be used. They don't really have a place in therapy anymore uh, because of their, their risk of causing orthostatic hypotension in falls. Um, of note, uh, dipyridamol is also available in a drug called Agronox, which is in a combined with aspirin in a sustained release form. Um, that combination is not on the beer side criteria. The Igronox or the sustained release dipyridamol with aspirin um, is not associated as much with orthostatic hypertension, so that is not a potentially inappropriate medication. A couple other uh, cardiac drugs to talk about, dronetarone. It actually has been shown to have worse outcomes when used for AFib or severe heart failure. Um, and digoxin. Um, digoxin's you know, one of the old-time drugs. It's been around for many, many years. Digoxin has come into question over the years for its use in heart failure. Um, we used to feel that it actually reduced risk of hospitalization for folks with heart failure. Um, however, now that's come into question, um, and we've long known that there's really no mortality benefit uh, for using digoxin with heart failure. Um, so probably shouldn't be used, um, and if we do use it, we should definitely avoid doses greater than 0.125 milligram. A couple more cardiac drugs to talk about. Nifedipine, the immediate release form only. It does come as a sustained release, which is not on the Beers criteria, but nifedipine immediate release is associated with hypotension and risk of MI. Amiodarone for AFib has been shown to have greater toxicity than other antiarrhythmics. Uh, including both pulmonary and hepatic toxicity as well as thyroid toxicity. Um, the pulmonary I've actually seen induced in some patients in the past in, in my practice site where it has kind of a pulmonary fibrosis um, which um, often presents a shortness of breath which we often worry about things like uh, PE with that. Um, but pulmonary um, and hepatic and thyroid toxicity are all a big problem with amiodarone. So there's other agents we can use. Um, however, um, due to its uh, effectiveness for heart failure, for folks that have both AFib um, and concomitant heart failure, it can be a reasonable choice. Um, also, if we do use amiodarone, we do need to monitor for these toxicities, including getting some PFTs and also periodically checking for liver, liver function as well as TSH for thyroid toxicity. Antidepressants. Okay, so there's different types of antidepressants out there. We're gonna talk about the list that's on the Beers criteria right now. And these are the ones that are strongly anticholinergic. Remember, anticholinergic effects include things like cognitive impairment, constipation, dry mouth, 
dry eyes and dizziness. So things like that, um, never a good thing as we're getting older. Uh, and of course, you know, the associated falls uh, make these, these drugs a little bit risky. Uh, the drugs listed on your screen, most of them are the tricyclics, the amitriptyline, dazipramine, doxepin in doses greater than six milligrams a day, imipramine or nortriptyline are all tricyclics. Uh, paroxetine, on the other hand, is an SSRI, which is one of the newer classes of drugs, uh, which we generally think of as less problematic, less side effect prone from the older ones. However, paroxetine, even though it's an SSRI, um, is pretty strongly anticholinergic. It's the most anticholinergic of the SSRI, so it gets included on the list here. Antipsychotics should just basically not be used in patients with dementia unless they're absolutely the only drug that works. Um, we know from many, many studies in a black box warning that these drugs have serious side effects. Um, and we also know that there's min minimal benefit on the behaviors um, that are often the target of these drugs. Um, the black box warning, uh, which the FDA has placed on all antipsychotics, both first and second generation agents, increase risk of death in older adults with dementia on these medications. That's a pretty serious side effect. So I think we really need to rethink our use of antipsychotics for patients with dementia. We also know that they reduce cognition and they cause increased risk of falls and stroke risks. So many, many um, concerns with using antipsychotics for patients with dementia. Benzodiazepines associated with increased falls, cognitive decline, delirium, fractures, and motor vehicle accidents. Um, this includes both the short-acting and the long-acting agents. Um, the short-acting tend, tend to have a theoretical advantage over the long-acting in older adults simply because they don't accumulate as much. Um, they are metabolized and out of the system, hopefully before the next dose is given. Whereas in the case with the long-acting agents, such as clonazepam or diazepam, oftentimes you know, at the next dose of a drug, you still have a significant amount of the previous dose in the bloodstream. So you tend to get this additive effect that just keeps building and building until steady state. But even with that advantage of not having as much accumulation with the short acting, um, they're still problematic and they're still associated with all of those risks that I mentioned earlier. And in addition, um, it's often more difficult to get a person that has a long history of using short acting benzodiazepines off the drug um, simply because of the withdrawal symptoms are more intense than they are with the long acting. So you oftentimes, you know, it has to be a very slow taper over long periods of time. Um, and sometimes you even have to convert those folks to a long-acting agent and then do a slow taper because it's an easier taper. The hypnotics. Here I'm talking of what we tend to call sleeping pills. We think of these as the Z drugs, uh, Zolpidem, Esopiclone, and Zalphalon, um, also known as Ambien. Uh, is probably the most common brand name uh, for Zolpidem. Um, quite frankly, these drugs should be avoided in older adults. There's really not an indication that I can think of where the benefit is going to outweigh the risk. Um, the adverse effects are similar to benzodiazepines, plus they have this really strange side effect where, they, where folks do these weird things in the middle of the night and they have no memory of them. I have heard all kinds of stories over the years of people getting up and cooking themselves um, an egg, making breakfast, leaving the dirty dishes, and going back to bed. They wake up in the morning and they think someone broke into their house. 
um, and it was actually them. I've heard stories of people waking up outside of their house, no idea how they got out there. I've even heard stories of people driving to someone's house and then having no recollection of that. Very scary and dangerous side effects to these drugs. Um, and quite frankly, they just really shouldn't be used in older adults. One other thing about the sleeping pills, when people are having trouble with their sleep, we really need to go back um, and reevaluate their other conditions. Uh, because many times, you know, we're not treating their BPH effectively if they're getting up five or six times a night to urinate and they can't get back to sleep and they want a sleeping pill for that. You know, we're not treating their pain appropriately if they can't sleep because they're in pain all night. So we really need to think about treating those conditions that interfere with sleep and educating the, the person about the importance of good sleep hygiene, you know, all the things that nobody wants to do, like quit watching TV in bed, you know, have set bedtime, wake up times, don't sleep all day, don't take naps, all of those things that seem very boring, but they actually work. I mean, we really need to be focusing on that. There's a couple anti-diabetic agents on the list. Um, the first one, sliding scale insulin, probably raises a few eyebrows because sliding scale insulin is still used quite a bit. Um, but what the Beers criteria suggests is that we should not be using sliding scale insulin as a sole method of blood pressure control for people in the outpatient setting. So um, what we find is that when that's the case, when people at home are just using sliding scale insulin, um, they get higher risk of hypoglycemia and actually they have lower improvement of hyperglycemia um, because we're basically reacting to blood sugars as opposed to being proactive about you know, what a person is going to consume as far as carbohydrates. So um, not recommended as a sole method of blood pressure control. The other two agents here, gliburide and chlorpropamide, we just really shouldn't be using those in older adults because of their, the long half-life and the risk of prolonged hypoglycemia. Uh, we have shorter acting agents that have more safety um, behind them. So gliburide, clopropamide, just really we shouldn't be using those. A couple gastrointestinal agents, um, medical pramide used for gastroparesis um, associated with extrapyramidal effects, um, tremor, Parkinson-like symptoms, including tardive dyskinesia. Um, and then the antispasmodics. These are old drugs that we used to use, highly anticholinergic, you know, they basically slow the gut down as all anticholinergic drugs do, but these are very specific for the gut. Um, and really, we have better drugs to use for um, GI problems. So dicyclamine and scopolamine shouldn't really be used. You know, scopolamine still has a place in the patch, you know, for um, dizziness and lightheadedness. What about the PPIs? Well, if you're like me, it's hard to pick up a newspaper, listen to the radio, and not hear something about proton pump inhibitors. Um, I, I always try to stay current on what's going on in the lay press because I can guarantee that in clinic I'm going to hear about these things. So, so what are we hearing about protein pump inhibitors right now? Well, I think the latest thing um, that I've heard about um, is its uh, potential association with kidney damage. And there is some pretty good observational data uh, that suggests that there might be an association. But historically, you know, we've known about the association with Clostridium difficile or C. diff. Um, for quite a long time now, we've suspected that proton pump inhibitors are associated with bone loss and increased fracture risk. Um, and we know, and we've known for many years, about the hypomagnesemia 
problem from protein pump inhibitors. So, so where does this lead us? You know, these medications um, are very, very effective. In fact, they're super effective at basically shutting off the acid in the stomach. Beer's criteria suggests, and I think most of us are starting to come around to this idea, is that use for greater than eight weeks, except for high-risk patients, um, should probably be avoided. After eight weeks, we should really try to step down therapy, trying to use an H2RA, so um, something like ranitidine or Zantac, um, or famotidine or Pepsid. Um, those drugs are not as potent at reducing the acid secretion in the stomach, um, and they tend to be a little safer and not associated with some of these side effects. So the question always becomes then, what is a high-risk patient? Well, um, a high-risk patient would certainly be maybe someone that has um, erosive esophagitis or Barrett's esophagitis because we know that those are associated with a pretty high risk for developing esophageal cancer. So, you know, we could certainly make a case for, yes, uh, C. diff and all these other problems are problematic, but um, compared to esophageal cancer, you know, it might be that the, the risk is less than the benefit. So, you know, that might be a case. Uh, certainly patients that are on NSAIDs long-term or corticosteroids long-term, which we know are associated with risk of GI bleeding. So adding a proton pump inhibitor to those is, has been known to be very effective at reducing risk of GI bleeding. So certainly maybe uh, that might be a, a good suggestion as well. Uh, but those are the ones that come to mind to me uh, that would be high risk. Um, we do know that when we stop proton pump inhibitors, that we do often get rebound GERD or esophageal reflux. Hence, we need to treat that with an H2RA. Um, but after a period of weeks, hopefully that returns to normal. Um, so don't be alarmed if your patients, when you're, when you're stepping them down, you know, might have a little bit of rebound and, and see if they can get through that um, and if it gets better. Um, however, people that continue to suffer multiple times a week uh, might just have to be on a PPI and we need to monitor for things like maybe get a DEXA scan to make sure that you know, we're not negatively affecting um, their bone health. Um, and remember, for folks that are on proton pump inhibitors that need calcium supplementation, we need to use the calcium citrate form because it's less um, affected by lack of acid than the calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate needs an acidic environment to be absorbed. So if you take calcium carbonate in a non-acidic stomach, you're not gonna get very good absorbance. Calcium citrate, on the other hand, will still be absorbed. Pain medications, um, there's lots of buzz about pain medications right now all over the press. Um, the Beers criteria have picked out um, aparidine or Demerol, which we just should avoid. We have way more effective medications for pain than that. Um, and Demerol is associated with some serious side effects, a toxic metabolite, increased risk of seizures, so they're just really not a good drug to use. Uh, the NSAIDs. The NSAIDs appeared on the Beers criteria a number of years ago, and with good reason. And this is talking about chronic use of non-COX-2 um, NSAIDs. Chronic use is associated with GI bleed and renal toxicity. They also exacerbate many other conditions and medications. So um, the problem with the GI bleed, it can be very insidious and occur over long periods of time with relatively minimal pain, simply because you're taking an NSAID which blocks that pain response. So these drugs all tend to be associated with that. 
Um, more recently, you know, we've had all kinds of um, reports, and we see it in clinic all the time, of this renal toxicity causing things such as acute renal failure, um, as well as more of a chronic syndrome of uh, sodium and water retention, which tends to exacerbate conditions such as heart failure. If we do need to use a non-COX-2 NSAID um, long-term, we should definitely be protecting the gut with one of those proton pump inhibitors or misoprostol to minimize that GI toxicity. Of note here, the only COX-2 NSAID that we have available in the market at this point um, is Celebrex or Celecoxib. And that one is associated with less GI problems, but it's not necessarily associated with less renal toxicity. Skeletal muscle relaxants, again, I just can't think of too many patients that I would probably think these medications were worth using. Um, they cause extreme sedation, um, risk of falls, fractures, and they're anticholinergic. So that's the highlights of table two, which is the classic Beers criteria drugs that are potentially inappropriate in the older adults. Um, let's shift over to table three. And table three is a listing of potentially inappropriate medications, uh, and this is due to the drug disease or drug syndrome interactions. So this is a case where if the patient didn't have this disease, maybe this drug wouldn't be that dangerous. Uh, but because they have this disease or syndrome, uh, this drug becomes a little bit more risky. Heart failure, a very common diagnosis in older adults. Uh, drugs that any drug that is going to promote fluid retention will exacerbate heart failure. This includes all the NSAIDs and the COX-2 inhibitors, so the Celebrex as well as the traditional NSAIDs. A couple of calcium channel blockers here, Diltius and Verapamil. Um, a couple of diabetes drugs that have kind of fallen out of favor over the years, pioglitazone and rosiglitazone, which is actually off the market, except in extreme rare cases, you can, I guess, get a hold of that. Uh, Solastazole, which is a drug not used very often, but it's used for um, uh, peripheral artery disease. Um, and then um, dronetarone, which we've already talked about. These drugs all can promote fluid retention, certainly not a good thing when we have heart failure. Uh, patients with a history of syncope, any drugs that increase risk of orthostatic hypertension or bradycardia, which some of them are listed here, some of these drugs may be important. Again, this is a case where we have to look at the risk versus the benefit. So in the case of ACE inhibitors, I can think of a lot of patients where the benefit is going to outweigh the risk. Certainly with heart failure, we have lots of data showing positive uh, effects of ACE inhibitors for patients with heart failure. However, they are going to increase the risk of orthostatic hypertension. Uh, the alpha blockers, the non-selective, we've already talked about those, terazosin, um, doxazosin and prazosin. We just, just shouldn't be using those anymore. Um, there's uh, selective agents that are going to be safer. The tricyclic antidepressants, as well as three of the antipsychotics, which I have listed there, uh, tend to be associated with uh, orthostatic hypertension. Patients with a history of seizure disorder, uh, we do need to be le uh, leery of any drug that's going to lower the seizure threshold. Bupropion is the one that's probably of this group used pretty widely. Um, both for depression um, as well as smoking cessation. Now, the bupropion uh, drugs that we have on the market today uh, tend to be the sustained release formulation, and they tend to be safer um, and not lower the seizure th threshold as much as the old immediate release forms. So it does seem that most people can tolerate this drug, 
but we do still need to be aware of that. Uh, certainly antipsychotics lower the seizure threshold as well as tramadol, which is used for pain. In older adults, any drug that increased the risk for delirium is potentially problematic, um, especially when as patients go into uh, changes in uh, levels of care. So as people transition from home to long-term care facility or long-term care facility to hospital or from ICU to, or ward to ICU, all of those transitions can be associated with risk for delirium. And if we have medications on board, we tend to um, increase that risk even further. Uh, the first group of drugs on the list is anticholinergic, which is a huge list, and we're going to talk about that when we talk about Table 7. Um, but anticholinergics all increase the risk for delirium, antipsychotic, benzos, corticosteroids. Uh, the H2RAs, which we talked about, is potentially safer alternatives for people that are trying to reduce the use of PPIs. Um, cimetidine is probably the most commonly associated with delirium, less so with um, the other agents, in particular ranitidine and famotidine. But cimetidine tends to be one that we probably shouldn't use in older adults because of its risk of CNS toxicity. Um, meparidine we've already talked about, um, and certainly the hypnotics, which I think I've already uh, expressed my dislike for those, uh, all associated with delirium. Uh, dementia and cognitive impairment, we have drugs that will exacerbate that. Uh, the anticholinergics, again, that's huge, a huge group of drugs um, that uh, are known to be anticholinergic, all can exacerbate dementia. Um, I've seen cases where people, once we've eliminated the, the anticholinergic burden on their drug regimen, um, they've actually improved scores on the, the scales that we use to um, measure cognitive impairments, such as the MOCA or the MMSC. Anticholinergic drugs like diphenhydramine, commonly found in acetaminophen and diphenhydramine combinations for sleep, such as Tylenol PM. Those drugs all can exacerbate dementia. Benzodiazepines, H2RAs, hypnotics, and antipsychotics. It's similar to the list for delirium, you might note. Folks with a history of falls or fractures, here's a, a list of drugs that we might want to reconsider. Certainly, um, many adults are at risk for falls and fractures, so we do need to look at these lists very carefully. We talked about insomnia earlier and, and how you know, the medications that are indicated for insomnia, how those are really not effective. You know, one of the things that we can do when we're trying to solve insomnia problems is to look at medications and think about medications that um, are contributing to the insomnia. Certainly like oral decongestants, pseudoephedrine, phenylephrine, commonly found in many over-the-counter products um, that um, are very stimulating. Um, stimulants such as amphetamine, methylphenidate, and modafinil, all used for various things uh, from ADHD to um, narcolepsy. Uh, theophylline, not used very much anymore, but an older drug uh, related to caffeine, and it's certainly caffeine. Uh, we need to think of caffeine as a drug. We need to think of the many sources of caffeine, from coffee to soda uh, to energy drinks, as all contributing to insomnia problems. Drugs that ex exacerbate Parkinson's disease. Um, I think most of us know that the antipsychotics are associated with this because of their um, extrapyramidal side effects. Um, there's three that are actually less likely to exacerbate Parkinson's disease, and we tend to use these. Uh, probably quetiapine is probably the most commonly used, uh, but also aripiprazole or clozapine can be used as well. Of course, clozapine, as you remember, if we use clozapine, we have some um, 
blood counts to get and some paperwork to fill out, so probably not used as much as, as the quetiapine or even the aripiprazole. Uh, the antiemetics, um, medical pramide, we've already talked about, but we also would throw in prochlorperazine and promethazine. Both can have extra pyramidal side effects that can uh, exacerbate Parkinson's disease. Uh, folks that have a history of GI ulcers, we should avoid large doses of aspirin, basically avoiding doses greater than 325 milligrams per day. Um, we tend to feel pretty comfortable using lower doses, such as 81 milligrams a day, which is found in the traditional baby aspirin dosage form. And we use that for both primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular events and ischemic strokes. Um, however, there really isn't much indication for using doses for anyone greater than 325 milligrams a day. Non-COX uh, selective NSAIDs, again, these are the NSAIDs other than the only COX-2 selective that we have, which is Celebrex or Celecoxib. They're all associated with GI bleeding. So folks, uh, older adults that have chronic kidney disease, so we're talking uh, stage four or less, which generally um, is a creatinine clearance of less than 30 milliliters per minute. Um, we notice an increased risk of acute kidney injury in the NSAIDs, and this affects both the COX and the non-COX-2 selective, um, both oral and parenteral. Um, and this is um, kind of an insidious drug often um, because I'm always amazed at how many people, when I finish doing their med list and med history, and I say, what other meds do you take? And they say, nothing. And I say, well, what do you ever take for, say, pain? Oh, I take um, that ibuprofen. Um, and oftentimes I find people taking it every day, but they don't necessarily think of it as a, a medication because it's, it's been so much a part of their life and it's over the counter. So we do need to be very um, diligent about asking these questions to determine uh, the use of these drugs in, in our older adults. Uh, urinary incontinence can be negatively affected by a couple drugs, both oral and transdermal estrogen, however not intravaginal, which is um, often very helpful for uh, problems in older women. Alpha blockers, the non-selective, you might say, well, wait a minute, don't we use those just for BPH? Well, there still might be a few people out there using those for hypertension. Uh, the other use that you might encounter in women with alpha blockers is um, sometimes we'll prescribe an alpha blocker to a female to help them pass a, a uh, urinary stone because it does tend to relax the urethra and allow for better passage of that. And sometimes, you know, those, unfortunately, those drugs get accidentally added to the med regimen um, for longer than they need to be. So we do need to be aware of that as well. Uh, these drugs can certainly worsen urinary incontinence because of their effect on the, the, the bladder uh, floor and the bladder sphincter. For men with benign prosthetic hyperplasia, or BPH, we do want to avoid strong anticholinergic drugs. Um, the Beers criteria do make an exception for the what we call the anti-muscarinics that are uh, indicated for urinary incontinence. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the strong anticholinergics tend to basically re reduce the urinary flow. They do the opposite of what we want. They basically clamp down um, and, and do not allow a, a male to uh, expel urine and they can cause acute, very painful urinary retention. Now, what about that exclusion for the anti-muscarinics for urinary incontinence? Now, we're talking here about the drugs. You know, you probably know them because they're often advertised on TV. The drugs like um, uh, Vesicare or Detrol, 
um, drugs that are indicated for what they call overactive bladder, which is actually urge urinary incontinence. Um, now these drugs can be used um, carefully um, in men with BPH, um, and we know that certainly men with, B, with BPH can also suffer from incontinence. So sometimes you actually need to use this combination. So you'll use an alpha blocker to relax the, the tissue around the, the urethra and allow it to expand. Um, and then you'll use an antimuscarinic to kind of stop some of the uh, detrusor muscle hyperactivity in the bladder. And they, they tend to work okay together, but you have to be very, very careful and you have to have some serious monitoring involved when you do that. So that brings us to table four. Table four are those drugs that we should use with caution in older adults. Now I think of these as, these are kind of like the B team. These didn't really make it to the A list. They didn't make it to table two, which is the traditional drugs that we should probably avoid. Um, the Beers criteria do not suggest you have to avoid these drugs, but they're drugs that we should kind of keep our eye on. So use with caution. So when I hear use with caution, I think I probably need to have a little bit more monitoring, be a little bit more vigilant because these drugs might actually cause a problem if I'm not careful. So aspirin, you know, we've talked about aspirin already for both primary and secondary prevention of cardiac events. Um, you know, as a person ages, you know, we begin to not have clear evidence of benefit of aspirin for primary prevention in those greater than or equal to age 80. Now we're talking primary prevention here. This is a person who has not had a cardiac event or stroke or anything like that. So certainly a person that's had an MI, the evidence is pretty clear. We need to have that person on aspirin. Uh, but for primary prevention over 80, we're not quite sure. So it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that if we're doing it, we should probably be careful. And remember with aspirin, what we're worried about is primarily GI bleeding. Davigatran. Um, or Dabigatran, however you choose to pronounce that, or Pradaxa, which is the brand name. Uh, Pradaxa um, is renally cleared, certainly for folks that are in the stage four chronic kidney disease or creatinine clearance less than 30, we probably shouldn't be using this drug. Um, and in other adults greater than 75, we tend to have increased risk of GI bleeding. This drug is pretty irritating to the gut and people actually get upset stomach from it fairly um, common. Prasigrel, again, increased risk of bleeding in adults over age 75. Um, and vasodilators, um, just as a class, vasodilators uh, certainly can increase uh, episodes of syncope. There's a whole list of drugs here that um, can exacerbate or cause SIADH, uh, symptoms of inappropriate uh, antidiuretic hormone. You see there's a typo there, it should be SIADH. Um, for these folks, uh, we do need to monitor serum sodium. Uh, serum sodium can uh, have all kinds of issues if it gets out of its range. Uh, probably the most common that we see in older adults is confusion. So all of these drugs can interfere with this, and uh, so we do need to monitor serum sodium. Um, of this list, the ones that I encounter the most often are certainly diuretics um, and certainly the antidepressants. The SSRIs probably are the ones I encounter the most, and it's pretty common to see um, low serum sodiums uh, with SSRI use. So uh, keep that in mind. Um, many times with antidepressants, we don't think of getting a renal panel, but um, we probably should. So 
So table five, this is one of the new tables. Um, it's the potentially important non-anti-infective drug-drug interactions. It is important to note that these interactions do not include any antibiotics or anti-infectives. Um, if they did, this list would be quite long because we know that there are a lot of interactions, drug interactions um, between anti-infective drugs uh, and other drugs, uh, but this list does not include those. It is important uh, as you look at this list, and I'm, I have a couple tables here, to note that it's not always um, a list of drug-drug interactions. It might be a list of what we call drug like generic drug category versus generic drug category. So if you look at um, like the second one here, it's anticholinergic and anticholinergic, resulting in cognitive decline. So earlier I had mentioned, actually several times I've mentioned the risk associated with anticholinergic drug therapy. And we think of anticholinergic drug burden as the complete risk from all of the drugs on a person's medication regimen that have anticholinergic properties. This tends to be additive. So if I'm on, say, diphenhydramine and amitriptyline, then those two drugs both have high anticholinergic properties. So being on both of them puts me at increased risk for cognitive decline than being on just one. So when you look at these drug interactions, it, it looks a little weird in that way, you know, because we're used to seeing like, you know, an ACE inhibitor, say like lisinopril, work interacting with triamterene or amylcoride, which causes hyperkalemia. We're not often used to looking at drug interactions in the sense of, you know, anticholinergic plus anticholinergic. Or, you know, the next couple, you look at antidepressants plus or equal to uh, two other CNS active drugs. So drugs that might have sedation effects on the brain along with antidepressants can increase risk of falls. Um, next page has a couple more drug interactions. All right, table six. We're getting there. So table six is a list of medications, again, non-anti-infectives that should be avoided or have their dosages reduced with various levels of kidney function um, in older adults. So we're really talking here about as we age, you know, every decade of life, we lose a certain percentage of our kidney function um, and medications that might have been very, very appropriately dosed when we were age 40, suddenly when we're age 75 or 80, um, we're actually in the toxic range. So, so this list is um, very nice because it not only lists the medications, but it lists the kidney function that we should actually take some action and it also lists what action we should take. So I'm gonna go through a couple of these um, just to kind of give you um, an indication of how this table works. So let's look at anoxaparin. So the last one on the list here, anoxaparin is an, an injectable form of a low molecular weight heparin. It's often used in the outpatient setting um, to bridge people um, when they're you know, just recently diagnosed with say a DVT or PE until we get their, their warfarin, say, up to um, a therapeutic level. Uh, we'll actually give people anoxaparin. Um, it is important to realize that if the patient has creatinine clearance of less than 30 milliliters per minute, uh, we need to reduce the dose. Otherwise, we increase the risk of bleeding. So I do want to tell you that the Beers criteria, as most drug resources and most drug references will use, uh, uses the creatinine clearance as their indicator of kidney function. 
Now, many of us are very used to seeing um, something called the EGFR, the Estimated Glomerular Filtration Rate, uh, which is actually a different calculation than creatinine clearance. It uses a different equation. Um, that particular, the EGFR uses what we call the MDRD equation, which is um, generally used to stage kidney, kidney function, you know, like what stage they're in. And it's a relatively uh, newer way to assess kidney function compared to the creatinine clearance calculation, which is done by the Koch, Groff, and Gault equation. And if you look at most drug uh, package inserts and, and resources, they generally give dosing for renally cleared drugs in terms of creatinine clearance levels. So um, as healthcare providers, when we're dosing these drugs that are renally cleared, we probably need to go back to uh, the calculation of the creatinine clearance. Um, the number is very similar in both the creatinine clearance and the EGFR, but at certain breakpoints, you know, like you know, like 30 and 60, sometimes there can be a significant difference in the calculation that people might fall in one range or the other. Um, and so we probably do need to calculate that creatinine clearance when we're basically given EGFR in many of our electronic medical records today. Um, this calculation is not difficult. Um, in fact, most people today will just go online and Google creatinine clearance calculator. Um, I tend to use one at a site that has a lot of different calculators. It's called Global RPH. That's G-L-O-B-A-L-R-P-H, like pharmacist. Um, that site has um, uh, a tremendous uh, wealth of calculators there, including the creatinine clearance calculator. So uh, when you're dosing these drugs, it is a good idea to go ahead and do that. A couple more drugs here. Um, of this list, I think probably the ones that I encounter the most often are rivaroxaban, um, duloxetine, um, and gabapentin. Uh, gabapentin, uh, of course, we use a lot in older adults uh, because of uh, neuropathies. Um, duloxetine again for um, pain as associated with and also depression um, and these are both drugs that we need to look pretty closely at their renal function as we dose them. Another table. Okay table seven. So table seven is the list of drugs with strong anticholinergic properties. Again this is a, an update in the 2015 update. Now these lists have been around for a long time and we've had one uh, here that we use at the Iowa Geriatric Education Center for many years. Um, so I've just, I'm not gonna go through these, but you know, I've been talking about anticholinergic drugs for almost this entire presentation. Um, and as a class, they're probably the drugs that I see the most common um, in the regimens of my patients in geriatric clinic. Uh, that, that are causing the most problems. Um, I can't think of any other group of drugs that I see more often that cause problems. Um, and they're broken down in this list kind of nicely in um, therapeutic categories. So things like the antihistamines, which we've already talked about, you know, remembering that many of these antihistamines are not necessarily used for their antihistaminic, like for their allergy indication, but many of them are used as their sedation uh, side effect. The anti-Parkinson drugs there, I just don't see those very much anymore, but they're listed for completeness. Um, the antidepressants, again, most of these are tricyclics. However, we do have paroxetine down on the list, uh, which is an SSRI. Remember, paroxetine tends to be more sedating 
than some of the other SSRIs, and it tends to be more anticholinergic. Doxepin, it, it, it's more anticholinergic in doses greater than six milligrams. Um, certainly the older antipsychotics are very anticholinergic, um, as well as the antiemetics, uh, prochlorperazine or compazine, or promethazine or phenergan. The antispasmodics, um, these do not uh, apply to any of the ophthalmic medications. Um, and then the antimuscarinics, remember I talked about the antimuscarinics when I was mentioning um, the guys that we have that have BPH and also urinary incontinence. These are the drugs that we can cautiously use for those, um, but they're also um, very anticholinergic and we have to be very, very careful about um, inducing acute uh, urinary retention. Um, and not just guys with BPH. Um, um, but all these drugs, because of the anticholinergic side effects, can cause things like dizziness, uh, drowsiness, constipation, dry mouth, and cognitive impairment. All things that we really need to think about avoiding um, in older adults. Well, do you remember our case? <laughs> Seems like it's been a long time since we talked about JB, but he's still there. He's still at home. Um, thinking about going to the long-term care facility. So remember JB, he was that 82-year-old male. He had hypertension or has hypertension, BPH, and uh, mild cognitive impairment. Recently, some constipation has developed. Uh, his weight and height are there. Uh, note his blood pressure. You know, he does seem to be a little orthostatic there. His standing and sitting uh, vary by quite a bit. Uh, his vitals seem to be fine. Remember, his main problem was falling, getting out of bed. I mean, looking at his orthostatic blood pressures, I think that's understandable. Um, getting up multiple times to urinate. He has BPH. We've talked about that already. He's getting dizzy and lightheaded, passing out again with the orthostatics that we've identified with those orthostatic blood pressures. I think that's pretty uh, clear what's going on there. Uh, but what about this confusion worsening? How is that related to anything? Um, and are we going to be putting him into a long-term care facility or is he going to be able to stay at home for a little bit longer? Remembering his med list, um, remember we talked about um, PIMS and polypharmacy. You know, he's on five medications. Is that polypharmacy? Maybe, maybe not. I think we've already identified that it isn't necessarily about the number. Um, it's not a terribly long list, but is there some problems? So thinking about... Um, what we've talked about um, in this presentation, um, what medications jump out at you? I'll just take a minute here and let's just think about that. Does chlorthalidone ring a bell? I don't think we really talked much about that. It is a diuretic. Certainly it's very appropriately used for hypertension. Um, it certainly requires some monitoring. Certainly we want to assess uh, renal function. Um, certainly want to assess electrolytes. It's going to negatively affect uh, some electrolytes, but um, I wouldn't say chlorthalidone is necessarily a problem. Um, I think most people probably uh, would identify diphenhydramine as maybe a problem. I think I've made it pretty clear I'm not a real fan of diphenhydramine as an insomnia med. Um, terazosin, again, terazosin is one of those non-selective alpha blockers, so that might be a problem. Um, the senicides and the malcomagon uh, are laxatives. You notice those have just been started in the last several months and weeks, kind of corresponding with the diphenhydramine, which is that anticholinergic drug. Remember, anticholinergics slow down the gut and they cause constipation. And they also cause some cognitive impairment. 
So I think if we looked at JB's regimen, we're going to see some problems. We're going to see some PIMS there, some potentially inappropriate medications. Um, I think the diphenhydramine is probably one of the biggest problems. It's going to cause the constipation, cognitive impairment, dizziness and falls, and exacerbate his BPH symptoms. The terazosum we're going to exacerbate the orthostatic hypotension, dizziness and falls. You know, we have alternatives to both of these, don't we? So the diphenhydramine, we probably just need to stop that. Uh, probably not start anything else. You know, talk to him about uh, sleep hygiene. But remember, one of the other strategies for insomnia is to treat other conditions. So the terazosin doesn't seem to be managing his uh, BPH very well. Uh, he's getting up multiple times a night uh, to, to empty his bladder. So we would consider changing him from terazosin, probably given at bedtime, to uh, tamsulosin or Flomax. Uh, Flomax is a selective alpha blocker which has minimal effect on blood pressure. So it has minimal effect on uh, orthostatic hypotension. Um, it's more selective for the tissues around the prostate and the urethra and the bladder. So it works very, very well. Um, and because it doesn't cause that uh, dizziness and lightheadedness, we can give it in the morning. In fact, that's what I actually recommend um, to my gentlemen that, that have BPH that are on uh, tamgulosin, is you take it in the morning. That way throughout the day, it lasts about 18 to 24 hours. And during the day then, you can be emptying your bladder very efficiently. So when you go to bed at night, you're going to bed as long as you urinate before you go to bed you're going to go to bed with a fairly empty bladder and you're probably not going to have to get up as much at night. So that will help with his BPH symptoms, which might actually help um, his insomnia problem. So we would need to watch very closely his use of the senicides and the melcomag. Um, if these were started in the last weeks to month after he was starting on the diphenhydramine, and we stop the diphenhydramine and we don't necessarily be proactive with these laxatives, uh, we could induce constipation and we might result in another potentially inappropriate medication to treat that. So this would be a case where we would want to do some investigation, find out for sure, was this constipation problem kind of a long-standing thing or did it really just occur in the last couple months? And if it did, we should probably proactively um, cut down on these, um, maybe to reduce the dose or make sure he realizes that, you know, as the diphenhydramine gets out of his system, he probably won't need these anymore. I want to close with um, this slide, which um, gives you some additional resources. As we've gone through these, um, I've given you some selective alternatives to use. Um, for example, with JB, an alternative to terazosin was a drug called tamsulosin. And that's really, you know, one of my big jobs in clinic is to, it's not okay just to say, well, you shouldn't be on this drug. You know, if there's an indication for that drug, we probably need to find an alternative. In the 2015 updates, this companion article was published as well, which lists some uh, selective alternatives for medication uh, in the Beers criteria. Um, it's not complete. It doesn't cover every medication in table two. Um, but it does give you some ideas. Uh, you do need to look at it and realize that that is a, a crossover list. So it'll have like examples, for example, on the first generation antihistamines, things like uh, chlorpheniramine, 
it recommends to use loratadine or uh, cetirizine, which are second generation, which do not cause as much drowsiness. But however, if you're using those first generation antihistamines for sleeping pills, then that doesn't really work very well. So you do need to look at it, you know, you know, as it is what it is. It's a very nice article. It's a very nice table of alternatives. So with that, I would like to close. So um, I would like to um, thank you for your attention. And I hope that, um, that I leave you with an increased appreciation for um, how medications sometimes are the solution to problems, but sometimes they contribute to the problem or create new problems. Um, and that we can do a great service for our older patients by being skeptical of medications and looking at medications as potentially causing those new symptoms and conditions that we encounter um, every day in our clinics and our practices. Um, again, I thank you for your attention and I leave you with um, the references that I used uh, and best wishes to you as you screen medication regimens for potentially inappropriate medications.